0: To the Freedom Pact, Shane. It's been quite a while, man. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back, man. My pleasure. So uh, I've uh, first of all, we hosted you on the show. I think it was back in like 2018, 2019. Um, but before that, I mean, before I even started uh, kind of redelving into this space, I was a fan of your work. I was reading your work. Um, I delved through your your uh, book on kind of mental models and then not only that um you know one of the reasons i've delighted is you've just got a new book out clear thinking turning ordinary moments into extraordinary moments and i think what interested me about this was that you know everybody thinks you know some more than others uh but <laughs> you, you like to think about thinking And I'm curious, you know, what was it in your life that I guess prompted you into becoming interested in, I guess, this concept of meta-thinking?
1: So I started working for a three-letter intelligence agency two weeks before September 11th. And as you can imagine, I worked with a group of amazing people, um, but we weren't really prepared for what happened over the next, you know, 15 years or so. And everybody got thrust into these roles and responsibilities, including myself, that they weren't, uh, you know, they might not have been the best trained for if we had prepared for it. But you just had to do what you had to do. And you had to do it for your country. And you had to do it for the people you worked with. And so I just ended up making these decisions at a very young age that affected my country, my team, other countries, troops in theater. And I just remember thinking, nobody's ever taught me how to make decisions there was no class in university you know decision making 101 and making decisions is this subset of skills so i started i wanted to get better at making decisions i started following people around the organization i'm like if i'm going to make these decisions i want to make them the best i can i mean people put a lot of trust and responsibility in me and i want to i want to live up to that and do the best i can so i started following people around how do people make decisions in the real world i went back i, I you know i did an mba i worked full time and did an mba full time uh, because I didn't want to interrupt. I didn't want anybody else to have to pick up my slack at work while I was uh, doing an MBA. So I did that. And, you know, I just started studying people uh, in the real world who make decisions to try to figure out what I could learn from them. And the book is sort of an amalgamation of those thoughts about what it means to think clearly and what the keys are. Why are some people consistently better at thinking clearly than other people? And, you know, I think we've. I found a couple of counterintuitive insights about uh, how that happens.
0: In this day and age, I guess, you know, where you go on social media and things seem so polarized, you see, or or I see a lot of things like instant gratification. Uh, I go on TikTok and no longer do you just have a 10 second video. There's also an attention grabber on the second half of the video to keep people's attentions for longer than 10 seconds. And I'm just curious, you know, in this day and age, in your mind, what does it actually mean to kind of think clearly? Because it seems like it's so rare in this day and age that just developing that habit seems like it would be quite an advantage.
1: Yeah, totally. So there's three elements I talk about in the book to clear thinking. There's the positioning that you find yourself in, managing your defaults and sort of things that hijack your attention, uh, which you can classify as temperament, if you will, and then thinking independently. But you can't think independently if the situation is thinking for you. And so there's two first steps. The positioning is super important for uh, allowing the space to think clearly and then managing your Your emotions and your ego and social situations. And by social situations, I mean something as simple as best practices, right? Everybody else is doing it. But if you do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get the same results as everybody else. You need to create positive deviation or advantageous divergence. You need to know when to opt out of the crowd and when to go with the crowd. And, And I think that we just don't think about thinking that way. Every book that I read about thinking and everybody, that I talked to in academia was like, here's some spreadsheets and this complicated formula for thinking. But everybody I talked to in the real world uh, who made decisions for a living and who made decisions that were consistently better on average than other people, uh, they approach decision-making in a non-academic way. And that's what this book is about.
0: And in terms of a phenomena like intuition, I had a, a, psych- I had a psychiatrist on the show, Ian McGillchrist. Um, that, by the way, I would pay to see a conversation between you and him in in real life. Um, and he talked about this kind of role of, of of intuition and this kind of developed principle that happens within seconds. Some people call it a mm-hmm. gut instinct. And I've be and, and in preparing for this conversation, I was speaking with a lot of people about you know this concept of, of intuition, and a lot of people say were telling me you know that they make decisions. What does the gut tell them? You know, big decisions, mm-hmm. they'll go with that. What, what are you? Where do you kind of come down on intuition as a kind of a guiding process for making decisions? I'm curious. I mean, intuition is is a signal,
1: so it's valuable. I don't want to discount intuition. Uh, and there's times when you can use intuition and then there's times when you can't. So if you're doing a decision that's easily reversible, your intuition is probably fine. You don't want to think about it too much. Uh, but if the cost of a mistake is high, you probably want to make sure that your intuition is correct. So you want to pause and you want to think about it. I, I think that we just, you know, it's not one or the other. It's about knowing what the situation calls for. If you're in a pharmacy and you're buying some toothpaste and your normal brand's not there, well, your intuition about what brand to grab is not going to, it's not costly. If you're wrong, I mean, the cost to undo that mistake is is pretty trivial. If you're making a multi-billion dollar decision in a boardroom of a business, your intuition's probably not the way to go. You want to check that and make sure that your intuition is correct. And you don't want to have the same sort of procedure around these decisions. This is what organizations tend to do. They tend to put the exact same procedure around decisions that are easily reversible and decisions that are very hard to reverse. And that just slows down decision making. It slows down judgment. It makes it harder for people to develop judgment and come up in the organization because everything is just so burdensome. But if the cost of failure is low, you want to go fast. And if the cost of failure is high, you want to go a bit slower.
0: I love that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. And this conversation actually comes at a a pretty good time for me because um, I've been thinking about impediments to clear thinking. And you know, and I, I'm, I'm lucky in my life. I mean, this show has kind of a, a, a philosophical hint to it as well as, you know, other, other factors. But I've tried to orient my life in a way where I have, you know, projects that I'm excited on short and long term. And I also put a big emphasis on social connection in my own life. That's a lesson that I've had from on this show. Um, but within the last week, um, you know, and I've got many things going on. I, I, I was inv- embroiled in an argument with someone over a parking space, with an organization over a parking space. And I have to say my biology totally hijacked my brain. I was spending all my days embroiled in back and forth emails. I didn't get any work done on the last, pretty much the last seven days. I My relationships, I was snappy with my girlfriend um, mm-hmm. I, I, the last seven days to me, I've been a total, blast. I was rereading through some of these emails and I can't even remember sending them because I was so high on negative affect. Um, I'm curious, you know, what, what do you see as the role of, of emotion in decision making and, and what is the cost of perhaps losing control like I did with the, <laughs>
1: If your emotions are too hot, you're actually not making a decision. You're not consciously sitting down when you write that email and saying, I'm about to pour water or gasoline on this situation. What should I do? If you were thinking like that, you wouldn't send that email. Uh, but when emotions take over our brain, the situation thinks for us. We don't think. And when, you're, when the situation is thinking for you, it doesn't matter if you have the ability to be rational, which all humans do. We have the ability to pause between stimulus and response, but we're not using that ability. We're just reacting like the animals that we are. We are biological creatures, right? We're hardwired for all of this stuff. We're territorial and we're territorial not... In, in the animal world, you're territorial. You, you know, a wolf goes around and pees on trees and sort of marks its territory, In the human world, our territory is the sense of justice, right, that we see in the world. We want to defend our own version of justice, which it sounds a little bit like this parking thing might have had to do with that. (laughs) And we want to defend our identity. So when people trigger these things we're responding exactly like animals should respond. We're responding exactly how evolution taught us to respond. Now, most books sort of like talk about, oh, well, you just need to like recognize when you're angry and then you don't send that email. And it's like, okay, well, that is a solution. And that might work. I think, you know, I polled people randomly and it was like 30% of the time, 30% of the time, if you're, you're hypervigilant, you can run. So how do we avoid the situation to begin with? And we talk in the book about safeguards and how do you create a system or a rule or prevent it from happening? Or if it does happen, you don't have to consciously remember what's going on like a great example of an automatic rule that seems to help people is no emails after eight o'clock or no emails after I start drinking I am not going to send an email after I start drinking and you do that as a rule and you have to tell yourself it's a rule so our whole life we've been taught to follow these rules we've been taught this is the speed limit these are the rules these are the rules of the tax system these are the rules of the democracy that you live in or the country that you live in you follow those rules or you get punished and we've been reinforced with this our entire life, but we've never thought, how do I turn this around and create rules for myself that will predecide what's going to happen in these certain situations? So even when I'm angry, if my rule is I don't reply after I've been drinking, or my rule is I don't reply after 9 p.m., it doesn't matter that I'm angry. Now, all of a sudden, I've just got myself out of that. And, and that doesn't become possible. Or you can draft the email, but not send it. You, you can have all these rules, but you have to tell yourself it's a rule. And that rule is so powerful. I'll give you other examples of rules uh, that just come to mind that I use every day. Like I work out every day. I sweat every day. And why is that a rule? Well, that's my rule because when I was going two or three times a week, working out was a choice. And when working out was a choice, I would start negotiating with myself i don't feel like going today i didn't sleep good i got a lot of work to do i'm behind on everything i'll do extra tomorrow you start negotiating you're like i'll do more tomorrow and then you lose this battle with yourself it's a lot easier to be like my rule is i sweat every day and that doesn't mean that i use 90 minutes at the gym every day that might mean i go in and i do a set of squats and it might mean that i change the duration or the scope of my workout or what I'm doing, but it does mean that I do it every day. It's not a choice to do it every day, I do it every day. So the conversation goes from, should I do this today? To how do I fit this in today? And these rules are so powerful that they circumvent the little voice in our head, and they circumvent anger and emotion and ego and all of these other things. A great example of another one is sort of not eating dessert. So if you're out and people are celebrating a party after work one day, or a birthday, a milestone, big win, whatever it is, and they grab dessert, but you don't want to eat dessert because you're trying to be healthier. Well, you're relying on willpower, and eventually everybody loses the battle with willpower. And It's a social setting. Your friends are going to pressure you into having dessert with them. Come on, you can start that tomorrow. All these little things are going to come out. But if you just say, hey, my rule is I don't eat dessert. Not only are you not deciding, you don't need willpower in that moment because you've been taught your whole life to follow rules. So there's no willpower required. You just... Know your rule. You follow your rule. It circumvents all the emotion, all the socialness of the situation. You say your rule. You laugh, and you know people don't push back on rules. And I got this from Daniel Kahneman when we uh, were—I was at his uh, penthouse in New York, and he answered the phone. And on the phone, he said, "Uh, "My rule is I don't say yes on the phone. I'll get back to you tomorrow." And he hung up, and I was like, "I'm so curious about this." I was like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "Well." I find it hard to exert willpower and say no. And I don't want to disappoint the other person. So I just tell them my rule is this. And he's like, nobody ever pushes back because it's a rule. And I was like, that's so interesting. What other rules do you have? And he was like, none. I was like, this is such a powerful concept. How can you only use this for one thing? And he went on to tell me, he's like, you know, I used to say yes about 80% of the time on the phone. And then I would always regret it. Now he's like, I only say yes to about 10% of these offers because now I create space between the stimulus and the response, which is what we're trying to do because you might think your intuition is in charge, but often your emotion is in charge, your ego is in charge. The situation is thinking for you and you want to be able to opt out of that.
0: One of the impediments, as we, as you just kind of highlighted the to to clear thinking that we have to kind of Perhaps deal with, um, as you mentioned, is this kind of social default that mm. you talked about. And you give me a scenario beforehand; I won't, won't reveal it, um, in which you were you had an instance in which there was perhaps some social pressure to take part in one activity that perhaps you know you said that you were kind of pushing back upon. And you know the research that that I did at university, and I've read many books on the topic. Uh, social influence, particularly in adolescence, is very high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, young people, they tend to be quite susceptible to peer pressure. And I know I certainly was as a teenager. Um, I become a little bit less so with age. I become a little bit more grumpy in my late 20s. Um, But, man, how do you go perhaps about, I guess, navigating the social landscape? Because this is a place where I think a lot of bad decisions really are made. Totally. So let's go about
1: why are we social? Well, if we weren't social, we wouldn't exist today. And that's an important thing to sort of appreciate, because we wouldn't fit in a tribe, if we didn't get along with people, if we didn't go along with things we didn't agree with all the time. Now, with that said, what keeps us doing social things is, or what keeps us doing what everybody else is doing often is fear. The fear of looking like an idiot, the fear of doing something different. And if you think about that, and the exam- one, one example I give in the book is sort of ditch diggers, right? If you think about we're, we're digging ditches, we're only using our hands. Well, the difference between you and I might be a little minute, but it doesn't really matter much. The only way to get ahead of you is to work harder or longer than you. And even if I do that, I'm only going to be a little bit ahead of you. But if I stop digging the ditch and I go invent a shovel and it takes me a month, well, every day that I'm inventing the shovel, I look like an idiot. I'm falling behind that production schedule that's like posted on the wall with how much dirt we moved. It's got Joseph moving way ahead of me. I'm falling behind. So why would I go invent a shovel? Right, There's a lot of pressure. I'm going to look like an idiot. Everybody's going to be like, what are you doing? You're falling behind. You're never going to catch up. You're going to get fired. You're All of these things. And then if I come back with a shovel, all of a sudden I can get ahead of everybody really quickly. And I think that this happens at work hundreds of thousands of times a year where the downside is really large. The upside is small. If you, I, I was talking to somebody the other day. He saved his company like $20 million with one of his ideas. And he got a bonus for, I think it was like $2,000. And he's like, why? He, he took a lot of risk in solving this problem. And he's like, why would I take that risk? I had unlimited downside, and my upside was two grand.' Right? And he, that doesn't make sense. And so all of these things sort of nudge us into uh, best practices, Following the procedures, not exercising judgment, not doing different things. Like, if you follow all the procedures at work as they're laid out, even if you know the outcome is going to be bad, you will not get in trouble. But that's not how it should work. You should have to exercise judgment. You should have to deviate. That's why we're paying you. And that's thinking in and of itself. And so, the, the, the way that social situations hijack us is that the situation is thinking for us and we don't think. That's the whole point of ordinary moments into extraordinary outcomes. In a lot of ordinary moments, the circumstances or the situation thinks for you. And that can be good and it can be bad. You can't be thinking every second of the day, but you do have to recognize when can I create positive deviation? And am I in charge of my emotions? Am I managing all of these defaults that we talk about so that I can opt out and I can think? And the other thing I wanna add to social stuff is position. If you're at work and you fear losing your job because you know that that's gonna cause you massive amounts of harm because you have no safety net at home, the position you're in changes your behavior. It changes the options available to you. You're less likely to rock the boat even if that's what you think is happening. The flip side of this is like, we all know that person at work who just takes the other side of things just to take the other side of things. Well, that's equally not thinking, right? Because you only want to take the other side of things when you create positive deviation or advantageous divergence. It's not enough just to be counter what everybody else is doing. You have to be counter it and correct if you want to capture any value.
0: So much in there. Um, just one thought that kind of come into my mind as I was going through this. And one kind of mental model that I I learned from, from you um, was the idea about inversion, and um, I would love to ask you what, in your mind, is the inverse of clear thinking? What what does that kind of look like?
1: <laughs> I think the inverse is the situation thinking for you. So you're not thinking. It's it's not that we're not rational. It's not that we don't have the tools to think properly. It's that in a lot of situations, we don't have the ability to think because nobody taps us on the shoulder like you and your email. If I I tap you on the shoulder halfway through that email and I'm like, Joseph, water or gasoline? And that's all I have to say. I do this with my kids. I, I just like you're choosing. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're exercising a choice here, but you don't realize you're exercising a choice. So when I catch my two teenage kids sort of like escalating with each other, I'm just like, pause, water or gasoline. And just that little phrase allows them to be like, oh, I do want to put water on this. But what it's really doing is snapping them out of their biology, which is reactionary, territorial, self-preserving, sort of hierarchical. And it's saying, how do I exercise my judgment? It's not that we don't have the tools for that judgment. It's that we don't know in that situation, we should be exercising that. And I think that that would be sort of the inversion of clear thinking. It's not that we're irrational per se. It's that we're not even thinking in these moments, we should be rational.
0: And I imagine there's people out there that are wondering, you know, Shane, you know, you You've done so much excellent work in this. Your, your podcasts are fantastic. All the work of Farm and Street is great. How often do you look back and go, I shouldn't have made that decision or I behaved antithetically to what my own principles are, um, et cetera, et cetera. How, how often does that happen in your life?
1: I mean, frequently, right? One one of my struggles with writing a book on clear thinking is that I don't want people holding me up as sort of like somebody who never, you know, never thinks unclearly or, you know, always has the right answer. Like, that's not how it works. We're human. And the only thing we can do is just strive to be better. The important thing that I think I do that a lot of people might struggle with is I'm very good at going back and saying i was wrong i want to do something different or that didn't work i need to try a different approach because in my head and i have these three words and they're literally on my monitor i'll show you like it says outcome over ego and that is just to remind me in the moment and it sits there it just literally sits there and it's about how do i get the best outcome not Whether I have the best idea, not whether I was right or wrong, like none of that matters. And I just want to get the best outcome. Being a parent helps you with that. Being an entrepreneur helps you with that. Getting feedback from people, if you're open to it, helps you with that. And so I'm all about how do I get a better outcome? Oh, you do that better than me? That's great. What can I learn from you? How do I take advantage of that and make myself better so I can get a better outcome?
0: Mom. I love that. And one of the themes of the book, you know, is is this idea about everyday decisions or ordinary decisions. Um, and I think the many people, they look at their lives and they say, you know, the quality of my life is proportionate to what I do, where I live, who I marry. Those are the three decisions that matter most and everything else around that is kind of secondary or trivial. Um, and one theme that I've taken from you over the years, and I really believe that, that you guys do this exceptionally well, is you look at things like compounding, you work up for things over time. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, if you could kind of talk about those, those ordinary moments and I guess about the, the power of, perhaps compounding in decision-making about these, these everyday decisions. We will be right back to today's brilliant podcast after just a quick shout out to the sponsor of today's podcast, London Nootropics. As you guys may have guessed, brain health and clear thinking is so important to myself and to the Freedom Pact as a brand. That is why we are delighted to partner with London Nootropics to bring you guys brilliant adaptogenic coffee. Unlike traditional coffee that can come with things like anxiety, jitteriness, and even an afternoon crash, London Nootropics are specifically designed to help elevate your day and to avoid all of those side effects. London Nootropics are made with their highest quality medicinal mushroom extract and other adaptogens. Each blend of London Nootropics is designed with a specific purpose in mind. You could take flow in the morning as this will help with mental clarity and focus. You could take mojo in the afternoon as this will give you a natural boost. And if later in the evening you feel a little bit stressed, then you could take the zen as this will help alleviate anxiety and stress. Starting your day in a productive way is so important. As we have mentioned on this podcast in over 300 episodes, we know how important that is. And that is why lately I've been using the flow every single day to kick start my mornings. Should you wish to try this brilliant adaptogenic coffee that we are so happy to partner with, then you can head over to LondonNootropics.com and use the code Pact for 20% off at checkout. Right, back to today's episode. Sure, let's break that into
1: two questions. Because the reason I want to do that is these big decisions you talk about, where to live, who to marry, what job to do, we know we're making a decision in those moments. So we're generally correct we're not always correct but we're directionally correct you know if you're thinking about marrying your partner and you're you're walking through all the permutations of that you're thinking about it now it doesn't matter if you pick the best partner for you if you go home and you bicker with that person if you don't put in the work if you don't put in the time and the effort all of that goes to zero it's multiplied by zero doesn't matter that you pick the right partner, it just goes away. Same as work. You can pick the best career path, but if you don't show up on Monday and consistently, reliably do your work, do your job, do really good at it, then you're going to get fired. And so we think if we get these big decisions correct, everything just falls into place. And it's a lie because you have to do these everyday decisions that sort of compound in a lot of ways, but these everyday things that sort of put you in a better position for success and they have the ability to unwind everything and they're not things that we consciously think about we don't think about you know being five minutes late to work and how that might affect our boss's perception of us we're not making a choice but yeah you are making a choice right you should have anticipate traffic. You, you have to like think through these problems. And like if you do it once, whatever, it happens to everybody. But there's a lot of people who are inconsistent about this stuff, but they're not thinking about how that impacts them, thinking about the position that puts them in. Think about partners or spouses. You get home at the end of the day, you have dinner together, you're both tired, it's been a long week, and all of a sudden you start fighting over loading the dishwasher. One person wants to load it one way, the other person wants to load it another way. Now, If I tap you on the shoulder and I'm like, hey, Joseph, like you're doing this again, right? Water or gas, you're going to be like, you're going to opt out of that. But that's an ordinary moment. But that moment has the ability to derail your whole weekend. If that turns into a spat, you stop talking to each other, you start screaming at each other. Well, now you have to make up for that. You have to spend all your weekend instead of building your relationship with your partner. Now you have to spend all your weekend correcting these mistakes getting back on the same page, that's a lot of time and effort and energy that would be better spent doing other things. We don't think about that. The other thing that's super important that I want to bring into this conversation is positioning. The position you're in, we we think of decisions as the moment of decision. And I think that's a flawed way to think about decisions. Everyone I studied in business who makes consistently good decisions thinks about the decision long before they reach the point and what they're going is not that decision they want optionality i'll give you a great example with one of my kids and this will explain positioning in a nutshell he comes home he got a really bad mark on one of his tests he's like teenage attitude throws it in my face and he's like i did my best and i'm like okay we're not going to talk about this right now because you know you're emotional and uh having played sports as a kid i know that most people quit sports in the car ride on the way home so we wait a while, the emotions come down, and now I'm like, okay, now we can have a conversation. About it. What, what do you mean? You told me you did your best, what does that mean? Well, he's like, I sat down, and I'm like, walk me through it. It's gonna sound stupid, but walk me through this. Oh, I sat down, it was 10 o'clock, I read the test, I read each question, I checked my work, and I did the best I could. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. A lot of adults think about decisions the same way, right? So you did your best you could at the moment of the decision, but hold on, let's rewind did you get into a fight with your brother that morning? Yep. Did you sleep in? Yep. Did you eat a healthy breakfast? Nope. Did you study in the three or four days before that? Nope. Did you really do the best you could? Cause you didn't put yourself in a position to do your best. And all of those things are things you can control. You went to bed late. That made you get up late in the morning because you got up late. You had a, a unhealthy breakfast Uh, because you did that, you were on edge and you got into a fight with your brother right before you went to school and you didn't study in the three nights before, despite knowing and having the opportunity to do so, you put yourself in a bad position for success. And we do this with a whole bunch of things, right? We do it with sort of debt. We can think about saving money, uh, sleep, working out. Like there's all these things that we do that make our position stronger or weaker, but we never think about them as increasing that position. If I don't sleep and I come home, I'm going to be more on edge. I'm more likely to get argumentative. I'm more likely to be irritated like you. You were irritated with your girlfriend uh, about this parking thing, right? It has nothing to do with her, but she's feeling the brunt of it, right? So when you show up to that relationship or you show up to your date, you're in a bad position with her. You're in a bad position to sort of connect with her, to love her, to give her the love and support she needs. And she's in a bad, or she will be put in a bad position to give you that back because she's like, what is going on here? This has nothing to do with me. And and so you can see how these ordinary moments sort of like spiral out of control.
0: I got to say my girlfriend, she's going to, she's going to screen record that and send that to me, I think a couple of times. Well, think about this,
1: right? <laughs> like, so, so if you yeah. think about your relationship and you're going to have a long-term relationship with somebody, th- there's a couple of things that have to be true, right? So there's four permutations of a relationship, whether it's your partner, your spouse, your customers, your kids, it doesn't matter. There's win-win, win-lose, lose-win and lose-lose. And only one of those relationships, I'm going to tie this back to compounding, has the opportunity to survive across time, and that's win-win. And so if you're in a relationship and it's not win-win, then it's not gonna survive across time. We all know what it feels like to be on a losing side of a, a relationship. Losing being somebody's taking advantage of us, uh, we feel like they're pressuring us, You know, we're not winning out of this relationship. And so it never pays to take the last dime off, a, off the table in a business relationship. It pays to make sure that your counterparty is winning because you want to compound. And what do we know about compounding? We know that all the advantages to compounding come at the end. They don't come at the beginning, literally. And we don't think about this when it comes to relationships. So let's apply this concept to our relationship with our partner. You have a relationship with your partner. Imagine a piece of grass between the two of you, and if you invest in that relationship and you invest in weekly date nights or whatever it is for you guys, where you're cuddling, you're connecting, you're sort of in touch, well, that grass is always going to be wet. And if that grass is wet, what happens when a spark hits it? Nothing. But if we don't invest in that, what happens when a spark hits? Well, now we got an inferno. We got to put out that inferno. So unless we're investing in that relationship, we're not going to survive across time. And if we're not going to survive across time, what are we doing here? Why are we together? That doesn't make any sense.
0: I think that a a kind of a theme that I'm taking away from this, that I've taken from your work, and that is that in the short term, you are as good as your intensity. Mm. You know, you are as good as the You've got three days to revise for a test. You buy a couple of energy drinks. You, you, you go out for it. But in the long term, what matters is consistency. As you said, you said, I mean, you had a fantastic tweet about this. I think it might have been your your top tweet to 2022, you know, but in terms of like consistency, what matters is, is in the long term. What matters is the compounding. And I remember a quote, uh, that I found from your first book. You said, I don't want to be a great problem solver. I want to avoid problems, prevent them from happening and yeah. do it right f- from the beginning. And I think that kind of ties in, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, where, you know, you've got the big decisions up here that perhaps we think about. But it's, as you said, it's the little decisions day by day that can prevent a catastrophe and that can compound into mm-hmm. pretty large results over time.
1: Yeah, I am um- I don't know if I have anything to add to that. You did a good job summarizing it, right? Most most of us are sort of we're inconsistent. That's the biggest problem for most people is that we're inconsistent. We're reliable most of the time, but we're not reliable all the time. We're trustworthy most of the time, but we're not trustworthy all the time. Uh, Duolingo is a great example. I've had some friends try to learn other languages. They open the app. They start learning for two weeks. They're consistent. They really make a lot of progress. Then they start becoming inconsistent and they wonder why they're not making progress it's sort of like it's like we're sisyphus right we're rolling this ball up this hill And we sort of get halfway there and we're like, ah, it's too much work. I'll come back and do it tomorrow. And then when we come back tomorrow, it's at the bottom of the hill. Well, how do you expect to get any advantages in life unless you're consistent? Yes, you can apply intensity in certain situations where it matters. But unless you're consistently reliable and consistently trustworthy and consistently work hard, all of these things get undone in life that we want, that we value, and that we're working towards.
0: Yeah. And and obviously, I know a big influence in this field that you talk about in the book, and I know he's had a big influence on your life, was Charlie Munger. Hmm. Um, And I'm curious, you know, what would perhaps be the biggest lesson that you have learned from Charlie Munger in terms of making better decisions?
1: I summarize it as avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance. So I I think his quote, let me just dig it up here because I want to get it right. His quote that says this, it's, he says, it's remarkable how much long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to consistently be not stupid instead of trying to be intelligent. I think that there's so much wisdom in that. We're always seeking, and th- this goes back to positioning again, right? We're always seeking to predict the future. We want to be brilliant. But positioning is like how do we position ourselves for multiple possible futures so that we don't need to know what the actual future is we can just adapt and respond as it comes and nothing's going to take us out of the game whereas if we go all in on something and the environment changes well now we're fragile and we're going to lose it all and so i think about how do i avoid errors and even if that means going slower because what most people think about is they're like how do i win tomorrow And I never want to win tomorrow at the expense of the decade. And and this is so often applied in situations with people. If we have a problem with a colleague at work, we, we talk to them often in a way that we wouldn't talk to our spouse, that we wouldn't talk to somebody who's going to be in our life for 10 or you know 20 years. But if we approach that conversation as if, hey, we're going to be together in this relationship for 10 or 20 years, well, now I'm going to take a different tone to it. You're going to take a different response to it. Now we're going to get somewhere much better than where we would have gotten to otherwise. And I think I just think about long term. I never want to win tomorrow at the expense of the decade. And if we think in terms of decades, a lot of crappy behavior a lot of things that get us into trouble just fall off right if we want people in our lives for decades then we know we need to be trustworthy we know we need to be consistent we know we need to be reliable we want to work at the same company uh, and we want to have the opportunity to leave and the opportunity to work there. We we just want the options. Well, we have to be consistent. We have to work hard. We have to do these things. But on any given day, we sort of negotiate with ourselves sometimes around those things. And I think that's where we get into some trouble with that. So it's not about your intensity. It's like, can we be consistent? Like, I mean, man, if you just show up and you do the things you say you're going to do and you do them when you say you're going to do them, you will create such a contrast with 80 to 90% of people. You will stand out for all of the right reasons.
0: Yeah, man, that's that's extremely powerful. And and kind of going back to, I guess, you know, some real-life decisions that you've made. Um, If you look at, you know, your fantastic podcast, The Knowledge Project, I mean, many times I've gone back and listened to some of the podcasts that you did maybe four or five years ago. Uh, Jason Mm Freed, Daka Keltner, Robert Green. Um, And I'm going to perhaps put my own podcast down a bit by here. Yours seem to have a tremendous lifespan to the episodes. Mm -hmm. And that almost certainly must be a, a, a decision that you've made. You haven't built a podcast, for instance, around hot takes. You know, you haven't gone out interviewing people saying, what do you think about what Donald Trump said or what Joe Biden said or anything like that? And I'm curious, you know, in terms of just, you know, the knowledge project, because I'm I'm fascinated by, by how you've made decisions there. How do you decide, for instance, or how did you decide on, like, the the how to perhaps make the content that will survive a long time? How did you kind of decide... All that kind of stuff but I'm interested about. Sorry, it's a badly rooted question.
1: No, it's sort of the intersection of a lot of things, right? So again, uh, I want to win long-term. I don't really care about winning short-term. Nobody can take me out of the game before uh, I get the opportunity to play my hand. So I'm playing a long-term game in a world that's short term. And that means that the things I do look very different than other people. And I think creating and expanding the surface area of content, whether it's the stuff we write about on the blog, we have articles going back or I have articles going back. I say we a lot, but till 2008. And if you read those articles, they're still as relevant today as they were then. That's like 15 years. Uh, And, What I'm doing is creating a body of work of timeless wisdom, things that don't change, that still apply to daily life and business that you can use for insight. I sometimes update them, but the core concepts don't really change. And so the podcast is another way to expand that surface area. And so each guest before they sort of come on the show, I'm like, hey, we don't talk about anything topical. And if you do, we'll probably cut it. Uh, Just an FYI, like we don't want controversy. I don't, I'm not in the controversy business and we've had people say some pretty stupid shit on a microphone, stuff that would be like front page of the wall street journal and we cut it. We don't even tell them. We're just like, yeah, I'm not in that game. I don't want to make anybody look bad. I'm blessed to have these people give me their time. I'm blessed to be here. Uh, Life is so amazing. I want to create a body of work that stands the test of time and I want to help people get better opportunities. And how do we help people get better opportunities? I'm pro-opportunity, equal opportunity. I'm not pro-equal outcome. There's a big difference between the two. But what I can do that few people can do is I can bring world-class people into your ear, into your email box, and I can show you their insights in a way that you can apply them in life and business. And I can do that free of charge for millions of people, And i think i get a lot of meaning out of that i think a lot of other people get a lot of meaning out of that and it's just a win-win again but would we grow faster if we were in the controversy game totally but what's the point like grow fast to be fragile and be fickle and the people who listen to us are now the people that i don't want as the audience so if you're into you know I want my emotions high, I want you to manipulate me, I want you to incite me. I mean, we are not the place for you to be on the internet. There's lots of places for you, but Farnham Street is not one of them.
0: The classical music at the start serves as a deterrent. Yeah, totally, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I would love to kind of ask you, because one of the things that is obvious about your content is that you have an extremely high signal to low noise ratio, and obviously, anyone that reads your work will be able to tell that that doesn't happen in a short period of time. There's obviously a lot of thought. There's a lot of, of, um, you know, effort that goes into it, a lot of research. And, you know, and if you listen to kind of very prominent entrepreneurship advice or how to grow a big social media following, many people say, go quick, go frequent, you know, produce, 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 produce. Um, I'm curious, you know, because as I said, your work kind of seems to be antithetical and antithetical to that. But obviously, you know, you've certainly done pretty well across social platforms. You also got a very, very large following. Um, how have you kind of, because I think this is an example of perhaps uh, vetoing yourself out of this social influence. So kind of how did you make that decision, I guess, to focus on high signal content against probably what is popular advice to just just chip all the time?
1: Well, it's very kind of you to think of it that way. We we talked earlier about surface area. And so surface area to me isn't just expanding. I mean, it is if you do it in the way that I think we try to do it. But surface area for your content to survive across time, it has to be useful. You can't just like Throw out things. It has to be insightful, and it has to be useful, and it has to have people thinking. And you can do that in a lot of ways. You can serve as old wisdom. You can create new wisdom. You can connect ideas that people haven't had before. All of that stuff takes like a lot of work. Uh, and I think that like if you're you're in the content game, I want to do something different, right? I want to opt out of of sort of the normal. And the normal is, you know, I'm going to tweet 200 times a day, and you know. I don't want to be in that game. I don't want to be in that rat race. And, you know, sometimes I wrote an article the other day. It took me like two months to write. I still haven't published it. Cause I don't know if I like it. The book clear thinking. I rewrote that book three times before I sent it to the publisher. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, this comes back to positioning. I'm not in a position where I have to do anything. I'm in a position where I choose to do something. And I'm very fortunate to be in that position. But it means that I'm also a bit of a perfectionist. I try to get things right. I try to be insightful. I try to provide value to people. And I think that that's the way that we expand our service area, not just by sheer volume of content. Anybody can do that. Like If you're doing that, you're just competing with like the New York Times and the Washington Post and people who Are content farms, effectively, where they have better reporting than you do, they have better journalists than you do, they can create more content than you can. Well, what can I do that other people can't do? And one of the advantages in life that seems always to be on the table is to take a long-term approach to things.
0: And in terms of the knowledge project, how do you guys decide, for instance, who to get on? Because obviously, when you had, you know, massive guests, you had Kahneman, women etc but how do you decide who to get on this is so
1: easy for me to answer and so hard for other people to sort of accept that this is the response but literally i talk to the people i'm curious to talk to uh we get pitched please don't pitch us if you're listening to this we get pitched hundreds of times a day uh, because we have such a big audience we get all this inbound i actually listen to the knowledge project you'll see that it goes in waves and themes so, you know, sort of in the 60s, the episodes for the 60s, uh, it was relationships, sex, I was dealing with my divorce, and I'm curious about how do I make sense of this? So I talked to Esther Perel, I talked to Sue Johnson, I talked to Emily Nagoski, and I sort of talk about all these different subjects. And then, okay, well, now I want to do something different. I'm curious about something different. And so you, you literally get the hamster wheel of my mind. And lately, it's been uh, sort of like, high-performance coaches. What is the thing that the best coaches, if you want to call them that, the Wendy Rhodes sort of of the real world, bring to situations? And so I've, the one that just came out Tuesday was uh, Leo Legos and Joe Missoula, who's the head coach of the Boston Celtics. And how do we apply heart rate variability to making game time decisions when you're in the, you know, NBA Eastern Conference Finals, and you're a rookie head coach, and you're In your 30s and how does he do that and you know before that we talked to julie gerner who's amazing at what she does and i think one of the future episodes is geo valentine who talks about how do we gain uh sources of advantage and i'm just really curious about this right now so i just follow my curiosity and i i always assume that if i'm interested in it then other people will be too uh, and that's proven correct at this point. But too often we put out work, we put out content that we're not interested in and we're doing it because we think it's going to gain us an audience. We lose our voice and we just become part of the noise. And so if I'm not curious and passionate about it, I don't put it out. But that also means I don't look at the stats. I don't see how many, I mean, I go in sort of like once a quarter just to make sure our downloads aren't tanking or something on the podcast, but I don't really look at how much did, this episode get or how many page views did this article get? Because the minute I do that, I'm going to be tempted to play a game that I don't want to play, which is like, oh, if I wrote this article on mental models, I should write another article on mental models because that's going to get me more page views. And my self-worth is not tied to my page views. Uh, I think it is valuable even if nobody reads it. And that's how Farnham Street started. It started as a journal for me. And to this day, it is largely a journal for me about my journey my learning my reflections on what i'm learning and how i think those reflections can help other people in the same way that they've helped me and i've used all of this material to start four businesses so i apply it in real life i apply clear thinking how have i started four businesses well it's outlined in the book this is what we talk about how do we do this how do we apply it in our relationships how do we apply it in business how do we make a difference for other people and how do we make a difference for ourselves
0: yeah i'm a, i man, i got to say you certainly improved my life so uh i really really appreciate it i'm a, i've got a couple of quick fire questions for you if you're up for it yeah let's go we got we got about nine minutes left so, so let me go through a couple of quick fire ones with you dinner with warren buffett or charlie munger
1: i've had dinner with one of them so i'd go with the other one uh buffett
0: <laughs> never be able to read again Or never be able to produce another piece of content?
1: Never be able to produce another
0: piece of content. Kind or clever? Kind. More money or more time? More time. A workout with Andrew Huberman or a night spent with Daniel Kahneman. A
1: night spent with Conman. But the the answer that came to my mind was neither. I'd rather just go for a walk with my girlfriend.
0: Ideas or execution? Both. Both. I love it. Man, this has been such a pleasure. I I truly, I always enjoy your work. Um, I got a couple of questions left for you before I let you go. Um, As kind of a, I guess, a big picture summary, if someone just tunes in for this very moment, they've They've skipped all the 50 minutes of of iSignal content we give them. Um, If you were to give our audience one tip to become a better decision maker today, what would that be?
1: Think about the one thing you can do today to make your life easier tomorrow and repeat.
0: I love it. I love it. The question we sign off all of our podcasts with, before I ask you to kind of sign off tell these guys where they can get the book connect with you etc is what makes a life worth living
1: people family being part of this thing that is more meaningful and more powerful and more enduring than you are and trying to make that a better place i love it
0: shane where can these guys connect with you where can they check out your amazing work uh work where can they get the book etc
1: uh you can find me at fs.blog you can just google shane parish i mean everything will show up podcast is the knowledge project and uh if you read the book i would love to hear your feedback so you can email me directly it's not filtered it goes to shane at fs.blog I would love to hear what page, what advice in the book changed your life. I got an email today from a friend of mine who had an advanced copy, and uh, it just made me smile because the subject line was the only part of the email, and it said, page 113 changed my life. And I would love to hear that from you. What page, what impacted you, what ideas so that I can amplify those in the world?
0: Ma. This is always a pleasure when we, when we speak and I, I always learn so much. And I'm really, as I said, grateful for all the content that you've produced. So man, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show again. It's been a, a great pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Joseph.